Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's a special day for us as a church. It's a celebration of God's provision. In fact, every Sunday is just that, a celebration of God's provision. God's principal provision is His Son. And in Him, God provides all things to His people. And uh, we uh, observe some of His provision. It's quite visible. It's actually hard not to see in this instance of this building, but you know there's a lot of God's provision that you don't see. Some that you experience and don't notice. You're breathing. And until just now, probably, you weren't really noticing that every breath you take is a provision of God. In fact, the very first breath ever taken was the breath of God's own breath. And ever since then, God has provided. God is the provider, the source of all things. So we're here to celebrate that reality today. And... uh, I just want to begin with the question, can you think of the most encouraging thing anyone's ever said to you? Now, that's a funny way of putting it, isn't it? Uh, The most, like, oh, you got to pick one. Has anyone ever said anything encouraging to you? I I sure hope the answer to that question is yes. And if not... Let me encourage you. (laughs) Here's one of the most important words of encouragement that can be said. You are not alone. You are not alone. Someone is with you. Someone is sharing your experience. You're not alone. You know, there, ha- there is great healing in that reality. Not just the words, but the reality that those words represent. Uh, we have an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting here on Thursday nights that meets here at the church. There's a meeting, and I have heard the testimony of people who attend that meeting, that that meeting saved their lives, and they don't do it without a meeting, because you can't do it alone. You're not alone some of the most encouraging words that there are. You know, in the creation story, you read this in Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you could look at it. In Genesis chapter 1, at various spots in the story, the, the writer of Genesis stops and he gives 
an assessment. Well, God gives an assessment. The assessment is God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. He did some more things, and he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And you have this, it gets to be kind of a refrain, a chorus in the in the text, in the narrative of Genesis chapter 1. So you get used to hearing God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Then he creates humanity, and there's a different assessment. Very good. That's at the end of chapter 1. In fact, the story is... The story of the creation of all things is the story of the creation of humanity for which all other things are made. But it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You know, when you get to chapter 2, God says, it is not good. And that is supposed to surprise you. Because God says it's good, it's good. It's God saw that it was good. 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 God created Adam and breathed in him and he became a living soul. And God said, it is not good. What was not good? That he is alone. You see, God doesn't pronounce very good when he's only made Adam. In the text of chapter 1, he says, God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. And then pronounced very good. And then in chapter 2, you have the details of that story. God makes Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him and he becomes a living soul because he has breathed the breath of God. And God says, it's not good that he's alone. I'll make him a suitable partner. And so he does. And that is very good, which Adam agrees with at the end of chapter 2. Adam says, finally, at last, he says, that's the one. You see, the creation is an expression and an extension of the divine fellowship. You see, our new building is called the Fellowship Center. And what I'd like to say to you this morning is, Fellowship is the thing itself. Always. Always has been, always will be. Fellowship is the thing. It is not good to be alone. It is good to experience fellowship. And the reason that is, is because God himself is a fellowship. God is not alone. God has never been alone. He is eternally 
three persons in one being, and yes, we are talking over our heads. There's only one God. He's singular in this respect, that there's only one being God. And yet that one being exists eternally in three persons that enjoy a fellowship one with another, with another. And so when this God creates, and the epitome of his creation is the human being, he does not create human beings to be alone. He doesn't just make Adam. He makes Eve. And he makes Adam and Eve to bear children, to build a society, a community, a culture. The eternal God is an eternal fellowship. And so that eternal fellowship is reflected in the very nature of the creation that is made according to his likeness to bear his image. The natural world is a personal gift from God to humanity. We live in fellowship with him. In fact, if you ask the question, what is it that distinguishes human beings from all other animals? The answer is, we're the ones made according to his likeness. We're the ones made to live in conscious fellowship with him. As one theologian put it, we are the praying animals. And so we are alive by the breath of God, by the presence of God, by walking in fellowship with God, we are alive. And the whole rest of the creation is his gift, his house built for us. Something shared from his resource to our need. That's a fellowship. We're the likeness and image creatures made to walk in fellowship with God, to rule the creation on his behalf to exhibit his character and his nature in the created order. The natural world is not just given to us as a gift, as a provision for us, but also as a stewardship, as a task for us, as the thing we do. The natural world is given to us as a stewardship for us to manage and care for and fill with the image of God. We are created with one another built in. A husband with a wife producing children, a family, a community. And this is true of every aspect, every layer of our being from its physical nature. I mean, it's a material thing. It's made of molecules and atoms. But from that comes a life. God breathes on some dirt that he's formed, and it becomes a living soul. So there's a biology. And then on that biology, there's 
a social necessity. Be fruitful, multiply, have a family. In fact, all of us are of the one family. So there's a society and a culture and there's a psychology. There's an emotional life. There's a a volitional life, a a decision-making life, a thinking, rational, intellectual life. All of these layers are built in with one another. In fact, it's impossible to have an emotional life without a social life, which is impossible to have if we're not biologically alive. And finally, our spiritual nature. The very word spirit means breath. In fact, that's the breath of God. And so we are not just thinking creatures. We are creatures with the capacity to know God himself. We have spiritual life. All of this is an expression and an extension of the triune, the eternal fellowship of the triune God. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But Genesis chapter 3 happened. And so sin is the disruption of this fellowship. Sin is humanity turning away from God, going on our own. That's a suicide. Because life is in fellowship with God. So to turn away from God is to die. In Genesis chapter 3, we have that story. There's a, a Lutheran theologian, Robert Jensen, and uh, he was working on this idea of the meaning of sin. Here's what he concluded. I have it printed there in your bulletin. We are sinners in that we revolve in our own self-reference and do so piously. We can be religious in our self-centeredness. This is an idolatry. This is a substitution of me for him, for God. This is what Adam and Eve did. It wasn't just the eating of the fruit. It was the change of disposition that led to the eating of the fruit. It was to turn away from God, to not trust God, to not believe the promise of God or even the threat of God. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so they said, they went with what the, what the serpent said and they said, well, it looks like it tastes good and uh, it'll make us wise. And we will be God to ourselves. Independence from God is alienation from life. 
to turn away from God, to depart from fellowship with God is to die. When we came apart from God, we came apart. And so wholeness is in the one another fellowship of the living God. And so when we cut ourselves off from that, we disintegrate as human beings. And at the same time, our fellowship with one another broke. You can see this in the story of Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, what is the next thing they do? Oh, we got to put some clothes on. We need to cover, hide, not be shamelessly intimate. So, there's a breakdown of trust between Adam and Eve that is immediate. Our fellowship with each other. Uh, sin disrupts fellowship, in fact. Sin is the whatever disrupts fellowship. And our fellowship with creation broke down. Our stewardship became not just a task, but an impossible task. The Lord announced this to Adam. It's going to be a lot harder for you to get a living from the earth. And to this day, when we try to manage the stewardship of creation, we are whenever we fix one thing, we're messing something else up. You can't keep a, it's like whack-a-mole. You can't keep a lid on it. You can't get it straight. And so we are polluting the house God made for us. And even when we are working on taking care of it, we find it really nearly impossible to take care of. And in our relationships with each other, we all know we shouldn't be alone. We need the intimacy of fellowship with other human beings. And even in the closest relationships, there's struggle. There's occasional, at least, disharmony. There's, can I trust her? Can I share my heart and be safe? And so we all know that's what we need, and we all hide a little. Sin has disrupted everything. I've given a bunch of Scripture references that are really just there mostly to make the point that the the what is righteous, the opposite of sin, is love. The scripture says over and over and over and over, the sum of the law is love. The, the one way you can say all the rules that God has that tell us how to be righteous, all those rules can be summarized with the one word, love. Love. Love is a fellowship 
word. All righteousness is a reflection of fellowship, of the extension of acceptance and encouragement, love. And all sin is disruptive of love. That's its very nature. Now, fortunately, that's not the end of the story. If that's the end of the story, we just disintegrate and die, and that's that. We are only subject to God's judgment, and God's judgment is we're alienated from God and therefore dead. But the story of redemption is God's resolution of the problem of alienation. John 3.16, famous text says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten, his beloved son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. Now, we can read that like some sort of exchange we make, so we believe in him and God likes that, so he lets us live. As though that believing is the righteous act that I do in order to gain his approval. But what's really going on is a restoration of right relation because of the sacrifice of Christ. And John, later on in in chapter 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life. We might say, well, whoever believes in him has eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God. Eternal life is not about how long it lasts. It's about who it's with. And who it's with is God Almighty. And so what the sacrifice of Christ provides to us is restored fellowship with God and therefore restored life. Sometimes we think of salvation as just escape from hell. Well, that is a salvation. Or our justification, how God makes us how God considers us righteous on the basis of the merits of Christ. Or uh, sometimes we use this word propitiation. That means how Jesus satisfies God's judgment for us on our behalf. All of these are true. Sometimes we think of salvation as a moral recovery. (laughs) as I was a sinner and now I'm good. Here's what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reconciliation It's a healing of the alienation under which we were living. 
Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 11 of Romans 5. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. What is good about the good news is that reconciliation with God. Restoration to open, intimate fellowship with the living God in Christ and by His Spirit. This is in the name uh, that the Scripture gives to Messiah, Emmanuel. You know what that means, right? God with us. You are not alone. He knows... We have studied and been studying the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, you are not alone. He knows. He's been tempted in every way just as we have. Tested, tried, met the struggle of living in this fallen sinful world. And resisted it with perfection. So he, it was harder for him than it was for me. Because I just give in. He didn't do that. But he knows he certainly has suffered injustice at the hands of others in the extreme. He knows you're not alone. He knows what you're going through. He has gone through it. He carries us. He brings you to the very throne of grace. So because of this access his sacrifice provides, we can come before God freely with whatever is on our mind. This is reconciliation, the restoration of fellowship with God, with one another, and with creation. Now some of this is still to be realized in the resurrection But what we have in Christ is the love of God realized. It also reconciles us with each other. And so we have a church, a community, a family. This uh, we can read about in Ephesians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. The two is referring to Jews and Gentiles. And now in Christ, there's one people of God that consists of people of every tongue and tribe and nation. So making peace. And so he makes peace by the work of the cross between us. He makes us one in him. He reconciles us to each other. In Him, you know, if I've experienced the God, the forgiveness and the grace of God, and the love of God 
it liberates me to love you. I don't have to take care of myself because he's taking care of me so I can take care of you. And so we are reconciled in one body. And then he says this. So he reconciled us, making peace among us, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Do you see that in the book of Ephesians, God reconciles the church into one new community, and that whole community is reconciled to him in Christ. There's a restoration of fellowship wherever you look. And in Colossians, he says, in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. All the ways in which our disruption of fellowship carried out into the world, into creation, into every place we look, where now we are isolating ourselves from each other, and we consider the pinnacle of human existence to be something we call autonomy, a rule to ourselves, each of us ruling our own selves. Each of us, well, the end of that is you're alone. There's only you. The Bible has a word for that. Hell. And so in Christ, things are brought back together. And we're brought back together. And we're reconciled with the world we live in. And together we are reconciled to God himself. And therefore, alive. And alive for good. Irreversibly alive. So in the story of redemption, the love of God is realized and we can reflect it and we have the future, the promise of a future transforming face-to-face. That was in that text we read in 1 Corinthians. Then we will see him, we'll know him face-to-face. We will experience a sort of fellowship with God that we've only sort of tasted now. Now, all of this comes to what we do in the church, why we have a fellowship center. What is it for? Well, it's a fellowship center, and fellowship is at the center. And fellowship isn't just at the center of what Christians do. Fellowship is at the center. It is what God does and always has done. And so he invites us to come into that fellowship, to enjoy that union with God in Christ by the Spirit. So what do we do? Well, by faith, we live together in the fellowship of communion with God in Christ by the Spirit. Well, that's kind of long. We trust what God has provided and live accordingly. We encourage one another to walk in the reality of this reconciliation. We come together. 
we come together. One new man. Now, we're still in the already and not yet phase of this. There's, there's more to this redemption to come that we don't know yet. And so we're still, we, we still get a little scared of fellowship. Martin Luther described it as the incurvature of the soul. We get wrapped up in ourselves. But the gospel opens you up again. The power of the love of God opens you up to be loving. Because you are well cared for, you can care for others. So when we think about what we do as a church, and by the way, just for your benefit, this is a reminder of why we are here. And everything we do as a church should be somewhere on this list. We do a lot of activities, but the church is not a set of activities. The church is a fellowship. So we encourage one another to walk in reconciled reality. So... Part of this is our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. We walk with God in Christ by the Spirit, by faith. And so some of what we do is focused on the Word of God. We study the goodness of God in Christ found in the Scriptures. We study the grace of God, the way Romans 12 puts it. We, <laughs> in view of God's mercy... In other words, when we get together here on Sunday, every time what we want to do is take a really good hard look at God's mercy, at the goodness of God toward us in Christ, the promise of God to us in Christ. And so we are restored in the assurance of His love for us, which is demonstrated in his son. And then we worship. And when we say worship, we don't just mean we have warm, fuzzy feelings while singing. Though that's nice. But that's not all there is to that. We worship when we trust ourselves entirely to him. That's what it means to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. To present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's funny because it says bodies, and there's a lot of bodies here. A sacrifice. So it's not just about each of you presenting yourself to God. It's about all of us together presenting ourselves to God. So we meet to do this. And so we trust ourselves entirely to Him. We become available to Him. We are like the, the prophet who said, here I am, send me. And so we worship. That's what it means. And then we pray. <laughs> prayer. We pray. We share every little thing with Him. 
You know, if you live in a family, that's a close fellowshipping group of people. And if you live in a family, you know, you share every little thing. Dumb stuff. Something happens to you, you go home and you talk about it. Doesn't matter what it was. One of the things you say at the end of the day is, how was your day? And then everyone reports. And so in our fellowship with the living God, we pray. In fact, the Bible invites us to pray without ceasing. You know, we read that as a commandment, as some kind of burdensome duty. Hey, don't stop praying. Keep praying. Pray without ceasing, you. That is the wrong way to read it. For heaven's sake, the door of the throne of God has been kicked down by the Lord Jesus Christ. You get to go in there freely and receive grace and receive welcome and receive love and care and provision. How do you stop praying? That's, that's how we should read it. Prayer is the, is the thing Jesus died to give you, access to God. God as Father and a good one. God as provider. God as the one who is always giving you exactly what you need with perfect love. So when we say pray without ceasing, that's not a burden. In fact, what's astonishing is that it needs to be said. We pray. We share every little thing with him. I mean, little stupid things will drive me crazy. And the Lord invites me. <laughs> he says to me, you're not alone. I've been involved. I've shared in your experience of the frustrations of living in this world. Even the little ones. Bring anything. Bring everything. Come on in. Let's talk. We study the Scripture because we want to see every last detail of the goodness of God in Christ. And in Christ, there is only goodness. And we worship together. We come together and we say, here we are. We are yours. There is no better place we can be than in the presence of God. And we pray. As we go about our lives, we share every little thing with the one who loves us. And we look to him as our provider. Then we share our new life with each other. We have church. Now, there's three words that go here. Love, go, share. Love, go, share. When I say love, I mean, if you come in here, I accept you. No questions asked. God, Jesus said, 
they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for each other. If you come in here, you should receive unconditional acceptance. Now, the world has a kind of unconditional acceptance that isn't loving because it lets people stay. Actual love acts for the person's benefit. It loves the person. So, actual love is acceptance plus encouragement. Encouragement has a lot of forms. One of them is admonish, as in, you ought to. You know, if you knew what was good for you, you would. Love does that. Like parents taking care of children, right? Love, they don't just let their children stay childish. They encourage them. They help them. They do what's best for them, which is to help them learn how to be a person, to live in this world, to make decisions for themselves. So love is unconditional acceptance plus encouragement. Go. It took me a long time to come up with the word go, and I'm still not that happy with it. But go means be with people. Show up. We enjoy each other's company. That's what go means. In whatever we do. Here's what go does. Hey, I'm going to the movies. Want to come? It's it's everyday fellowship. It's, hey, you want to have dinner with us on Friday? It's not what it's not the fellowship that happens here, it's the fellowship that happens in life. It's sharing, it's a sort of comprehensive life sharing thing going. Oh, and by the way, it it includes anyone. How what's our point of testimony in the world to the goodness of God in Christ? Our point of testimony to the world is the love that we exhibit. And so we share this with them. We invite them to come to our house. We get together in the world. We go. We spend time together. We include people. We share joy and sadness. Simple being there. That's what this church is about. Love, go, share. This is what share, share is like one of the words for, the, for fellowship in the Bible. The word koinonia is sort of comprehensive in this respect. It means all kinds of sharing. It means sharing like when I tell you a story about what happened to me, and it also means sharing like when I bring a meal to your house because you're sick. Or you're uh, financially distressed, so we take care of you financially. That kind of sharing. It's, uh, one of, it's a word that is sometimes used for what we did a minute ago when we received an offering and people shared. Fellowship. Uh, sharing, this kind of fellowship is summarized like this. What's mine is yours because it's all his. He's taking care of me so I can take care of you. It's that simple. It's 
always joyful. Uh, uh, Yanto mentioned only cheerful giving. We're not kidding. We're not kidding. I take opportunities to share. I'm trying to learn to be generous as he is generous. And I'm out of time. The long and short of this is the church is a fellowship. The church is an extension of the fellowship of God himself. The church is a restoration of God's people to that fellowship to life itself in that fellowship. So what we do here is we abide in Christ with each other. We abide in Christ together. The, The Scripture says we know love. This is how we know love. Jesus gave his life for us. 1 John 3.16 Jesus gave his life for us. We love... First John goes on to say in the next chapter, we love because he loved us. We rest in his love, and so we love each other. And we exhibit this love to anyone and everyone without discrimination. That's what we're going for here. That is the purpose of that building fellowship center. It's the purpose of this building. It's the purpose of everything. So that is our goal. We walk with God and Christ by the Spirit, and we share our new life with each other. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness. Lord, we pray that these things would be real in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. That because we know your love, we show your love to the people around us. We pray that many people would come to know these things because of our fellowship together in this church. We thank you for your amazing provision in our lives, in the life of our church And Lord, we pray that we would be responsive, that we would be loving, that we would be avenues of your provision for the people and the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen.